welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast that aims to separate the fact from the fiction when it comes to the ancient world. Today's episode provides the conclusion to our trilogy on the good, the bad and the ugly. And I'd like to take a minute to tell you about why today's podcast will cover some sensitive topics. In the ancient world, attitudes towards people who looked different or had visible physical deformities were in some cases very negative. There's a few reasons why this might be. This prejudice might stem from a fear of the unknown. It might come from a belief that a physical deformity might be related to a transmittable disease. And humans have a tendency to like categorising people, regardless of how accurate their stereotyping might be. We're going to talk about the ancient concept of ugly. Now, you and I, and hopefully most intelligent people, understand that how someone looks is not a basis for judging their character, their abilities, their intelligence, or anything about a person. We know that physical difference does not make a person ugly. Right, now I've only left myself a little time to introduce us all, so here's a quick roll call. We've got Senya here to talk about ancient Rome, Meg who'll tell us about the ancient Greeks, and of course Barney who's our resident expert on the ancient Near East. And I'm Flo. I don't know much about the ancient world, but I'm ready to learn. So, in the previous parts of this trilogy, I've asked you all uh, how I might be inspired to be good, or how I might be inspired to be bad. And, of course, today's episode is about the ugly, and I would ask for tips there, but I think I've got it covered. So, if I did, in theory, want tips on how to be ugly in the ancient world, in theory obviously um i i want to i want to ask you today uh, what what you guys can bring to the table in terms of advice let's frame it as what what is ugly what is beautiful because we know that standards change throughout history um so barney i'm going to spring it on you in the ancient near east and in egypt what what is beautiful what is ugly well i think one of the one of the places you can first look to to work out what's idealized and what's not idealized or less desired is art um, and obviously, when we're thinking about the classical side of things, I'm sure Meg and Flo will come to, like, we derive quite a lot of our modern aesthetics from the classical world at times, or certain styles do in, in the West. Um, but in the ancient Near East and Egypt, we have a completely different set of artistic styles to work with. And if we think about ancient Egypt and the image of like an idealised pharaoh, for example, um, they're always very sort of strong and healthy looking and nicely defined muscles and strong jaws and stuff like that um so you can often assume that the opposite might be true not having those things was was undesirable um but i think something slightly more interesting and a bit more subtle is looking at um, painted art in egypt um where you often see that men and women are represented as red and yellow respectively or like slightly more red and slightly paler more orangey yellow um the idea being that men were outside often due to the nature of their work um you know in the fields for example and the um, women's labor domestic labor was often indoors looking after children perhaps or making pottery or something like that um so you get this sort of this spectrum of skin tones almost um and upper class women in order to show that they might not have to do any work often depict as quite pale um, because they're inside all the time, which is sort of a luxury. Um, so you might say in ancient Egypt that to have redder skin is you know, slightly less desirable, um, and then to have paler skin, more desirable. Um, I'm not going to use the term whiteness here because it doesn't really, it isn't really relevant, um, and that's a more modern concept. 
But what's nice when you look at the ancient Near East is that the opposite is often true and that healthy skin is described as red uh, because it's sort of flushed with blood and, and therefore sort of quite beautiful for its health. Whereas yellowy skin, which is discolored and lacking in redness, is ugly and sort of distressing and often demons are that color. Um, so I think it's quite cool how you can see across cultures that the same two colors have completely different sets of representations um, and that yellow can be a sign of, of a sort of a luxury in Egypt and yeah, a sort of ugly, pallid characteristics over in the ancient Near East. That's really interesting because today, nowadays, if you're really tan, that's normally a sign that you're quite rich and can afford holidays overseas. But that definitely wasn't always the case in, in British history. I'm talking about British um, attitudes towards skin tone and skin colour here. Um, but if you were a, a white British person in times gone by, if you had extra pale skin, it meant that you didn't have to do physical labour out in the, out in the fields. So that you, if you had pale skin, blue skin, you were um, probably quite well off. So I'm going to go over to Meg and ask Meg, can you define what might be considered ugly in ancient Greece? Yeah, I mean, I think Barney's sort of hit the nail on the head there that it is so relative. Um, in Greece, as it sounds like in maybe sort of aspects of um, like the ancient Near East and Egypt, it is quite a lot, especially with men, to do with your health. Um, and the ideal beautiful male body in Greece is this sort of very athletic toned body. And like, as Barney was saying, you can see that in art, you can see that in sculpture, but that does change a bit and other beauty standards change. Um, one thing that seems pretty uh, consistent throughout Greek thought is that being bald is really ugly. They really, really, really do not like baldness on men and women. So short hair on women is reserved for slaves. Um, female slaves would have short hair. And also if you were grieving, you might have short hair. And if you're a man and you're bald, that's sort of a classic Greek idea of you're an ugly man. So they really, really didn't like that. And the, the hair thing is interesting because that changed quite a lot. Um, the styles, like it was originally really in style to have quite long hair and then a bit shorter. And then it changed again. And sometimes that changes to do with sort of who's in charge. So when Alexander the Great was, uh, you know, the, the big cheese in Greece, everyone was like, oh, his hair looks great. Let's go for that. So it does change quite a lot. Baldness seems pretty consistent. Um, I've also just got one thing I found, which I don't know if I've mentioned before, but I found it in my previous research for a different episode. But I just think this is so interesting. Can I tell you about ugly penises? Always. Anytime. You know this. <laughs> I'll just call you up later with some more. But the ideal Greek penis was small and uncircumcised, but with a very long, thin tip. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So an ugly, an ugly penis for the Greeks would be big, circumcised, and with like a, a round tip rather than a sort of tapered tip. Right. <laughs> I would like to say that all penises are beautiful. Um, Absolutely. And, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't measure yourself literally or. Uh, metaphorically against the ancient standards for penises so if you own one it's gorgeous I think it's really interesting that um, that private parts can be considered ugly or beautiful because it's not really something that you tend to parade although I guess the ancient Greeks weren't really afraid of being naked in spaces shared by other men I know that you've talked before about shared naked spaces yeah absolutely and nudity on statues um They've they've frequently got their their bits out, but I do think the penis thing is interesting because it it's such a reversal of you know the kind of standard like modern in the West the idea of what's what's good 
Um, so I think that's just a good example of how that's a total reversal, right? That it's got to be got to be small and tapered at the end. That's really, really strange. But that is what they thought was beautiful. And the opposite would be ugly. So it re- it's so relative. Um, and it's so connected to the Greeks, as I was saying, towards health, but also about like goodness, not specifically the penis thing. I'm now just talking more generally about ugliness. But ugliness corresponds to sort of like evilness right so last week i think i was talking about the word kakos which can mean ugly or evil like morally bad um and ugliness is really 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 connected to if you're a bad person and also if you're low class so they've got a very sort of what we would call like a classist attitude towards beauty that if you're low class if you're a bastard so if you're uh, you know born out of wedlock that sounds incredibly old-fashioned but bastards are sort of a classic ugly you know uh, stereotype they would not know what to do if they found Jon Snow out and about so it's it's yeah it's very connected to all these other concepts that aren't actually about how you look I'm sensing a theme that that most of these traits of ugliness are things that people can't actually help so boldness isn't exactly something that you can help you didn't have alpacin in ancient Greece and quite often you know the the shade of skin that you have isn't isn't really I mean if you're working in a field versus sort of hanging out at home perhaps but also you can't help your penis size no matter what my spam inbox tells me (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) I'm going to now shimmy over to you Xenia can we talk a little bit about what ugliness might be in ancient Rome Yes, so I think with with Rome, we we've got parallels with both the ancient Egyptians and with the ancient Greeks. So what you what you wanted to do in Rome was not look poor, basically, <laughs> and um, and to be poor was to work outside, was to have that sort of uh, more tanned skin because of your exposure to the sun. So in order to try and look beautiful, uh, especially women, but also sometimes men would try and make their faces look paler, uh, sometimes to the extent of like drawing on blue veins, so that it looked like the skin was so pale, it was practically translucent. Ooh, that's quite creepy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and I mean, the, the kind of ideal face is also uh, big eyes, flushed cheeks and a monobrow as well. So that's quite different from today. Oh boy, I'm well on my way. I'm on my way there. (laughs) So they wouldn't just draw on blue veins, but they'd also draw on like extra eyebrow um, in order to try and look fashionable and beautiful. So you're telling me that my rosacea might have scored me a handsome husband back in uh, back in ancient Rome absolutely absolutely I'm not talking about the monobrow we're not discussing her today (laughs) Um, another thing I thought you might like is um, one of the like ingredients that was used for skincare um, in ancient Rome was uh, lanolin is that a fat yeah, so it's a, it's a fat that's drawn from sheep's wool. What struck me as interesting about it is today, that's often used as a nipple balm for breastfeeding mothers. Oh, it um, is. Yeah. So, but back in the day, they didn't have that. This kind of same. When I say back in the day, back in the Roman day, um, <laughs> they didn't have the same sort of um, purification methods that we have to extract this lanolin from the sheep's wool. So it was quite thick and smelly. Um, whereas now it's odorless if you use it today. Um, but yeah, they, they would be slathering that on their skin to make it sort of uh, nice and supple and blemish-free and, and pale. 
If I may offer a tip, if you're finding that chapstick isn't working and even lanolin-containing lip balms aren't working, just skip straight to the nipple cream. Sure, you might get some interesting looks if you're buying it without a baby, but it will stop those chap lips in an instant. Against the Law, sponsored by lanolin (laughs) nipple cream. (laughs) Right, so, so... We know that quite a lot of things that people have decided are ugly or society deemed as ugly are not controlled by the person themselves, but are just features of their body or of their life that that they can't really control. I think it's probably prudent at this point to mention that in the ancient world, um, people with disabilities uh, may have been considered ugly by their standards, which we wouldn't consider now. Um, I think I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but I, I'd like to just touch base with everybody else uh, that that actually the ugliness may have come from a fear of otherness and and differences in appearance rather than any anything else. And the psychology of uh, of of looking different can be quite frightening to to people when they didn't have scientific explanations for things. Completely agree. And I think, I guess we're talking what is essentially about discrimination. Yeah, right. But they might not have identified it as such in the ancient world. And what we find in ancient Rome sometimes is similar to what Meg said about like sometimes aspects of the personality being projected, um, either like inferred from the outward appearance or actually sometimes projected kind of onto people's assessment of an outward appearance. So one word that gets thrown around a lot uh, in reference to ugliness or disability or an unpleasant personality uh, in in ancient Roman Latin text is monstrum. So often we translate that as monster. For example, sometimes it's, it's used in reference to um, spies or people who are brokering unpleasant deals for unpleasant emperors shall we say you know people who are the kind of the puppet masters yeah yeah exactly so that that will be applied to them and we don't know what they look like we don't have a picture of them um sometimes we don't even have like a rendering of them in art so we have no idea what their outward appearance was like but because um the people writing about these people don't like them they'll describe them as um, a monstrum which has implications both for their personality and their outward appearance so there's this kind of blending of the two that is sometimes really difficult to um to, to separate into was it looks or was it personality uh, and the two could just be like mixed together in the roman psyche to to create like an ugly person but it wasn't necessarily their face that they were talking about does that make sense it does make sense. And interestingly, the word monster is used in, in Britain uh, to describe people um, both both who are who have a physical deformity, but also um, people who are sort of puppet masters, like you said. Um, and there's an interesting case in Victorian times of the two headed monster of Fisherton Anger, which is a which is a subdistrict of Salisbury. Um, and this was this was a baby that was born with two heads, or rather twins, conjoined twins. Um, but even though these these poor babies are described as a monster, they were actually rather lovingly spoken about. So they were so they're quite quite cared for. So the so the word monster has been used um, until fairly recently. So I found that quite interesting. Doesn't it mean warning, Zenia? Yes, it comes from monere to to warn. That's right. Yeah, 
So that kind of ties in flow with what you were saying about the psychology of um, of difference. I just had a tiny etymology hour jingle go off in my head there. Oh, go for it. Etymology hour. Um, I realise it's a bit of a sidebar, but I think it's a really good one that I don't think has come up yet. Um, is the verb that you're talking about is is manare, right? To warn. Yes. Yeah. So that's the origin of our word for money. Oh. Um, <gasps> really. Do you know this? No, no, I didn't know this. Yeah, so the mint, one of the mints in Rome was next door to the temple of Juno Mineta. Oh. Um, which is one yeah, one of her epithets. And uh it came to mean Mineta came to mean mint, you know, where coins are made because of wow. the association with Juno Mineta, yeah. And uh and that's where we get our word money from. So monster and money come from the same root. Mm. Wow, what does it mean? Critique of capitalism, if there are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a post on my Tumblr about this later, because that's deep, man, that's deep. That's going to go down well, yeah. It is, it is. Yeah, it's interesting talking about monsters in that sense. I think the mythical idea of monsters in Greece is so connected to this idea of of deformity. And I was looking specifically at female monsters, which I think is really interesting in terms of what Flo was talking about, about like otherness, that you get a kind of combination there. If you have a a disfigurement in your body, but also you are already, um, for the Greeks, sort of disfigured in the fact that you're not a man. And there's actually a word, um, perorsis, which means sometimes translated as like, lameness in specific like the lameness of the leg would be like paresis or skelus which is leg or impairment it could be used to describe blindness and deafness and baldness which is again the really good evidence for how much they thought baldness was ugly but also this word is used by aristotle to just describe women as a sort of defective version of a man so it's almost being a woman is in ancient Greece parallel to to having a physical disability. Um, so I thought that was super interesting in terms of the etymology. Well, it's not really etymology, in terms of the linguistics. But um, I was also just looking, like, I thought we could go like look at a couple of stories of, of uh, female monsters. And it's so connected to stories about their sort of sexuality and their beauty. Um, I think this is probably familiar to everyone, like these ideas of women being punished for things. One of them is Scylla, who's quite interesting, like Scylla and Charybdis, who are the sort of sea monsters who um, Odysseus has to sail through in between them in the Odyssey. Um, and Scylla is like this horrible, scary monster, and Charybdis is kind of like a whirlpool. But the story with Scylla is that she was um, uh, loved by Glaucus, who's a, a man, and then but Glaucus was also loved by Circe, the goddess, who's also the one that turns Odysseus and his men into pigs. Um, and so Circe is jealous of Scylla because Glaucus loves Scylla so Cersei pours a potion into the water and then dogs spring out of Scylla's thighs and that's how she turns into a monster is these these six dogs kind of bursting physically out of her body um so I thought that was a really interesting one Medusa is another one where one of the stories about how she becomes Medusa with the the famous snakes in her hair is that um Poseidon has sex with her and again very unclear whether that's consensual in Athena's temple and Athena is so angry about this that she transforms Medusa's hair into snakes. So I thought that was really interesting in, in terms of that idea of being a monster and how that's connected to your physical appearance. It is. I've always felt very um, bad for Medusa and I think she gets a bad rep, partly because I think snakes get a bad rep as well. But of course, Medusa's just doing what anybody would do if they could turn people to stone, I think, after such a such an occurrence. 
The other interesting thing about Medusa, just quickly on that note, is that it's always thought of as like Medusa looks at you and you turn to stone. But if you think about the stories, like looking in a, a mirrored shield or whatever, it's actually you looking at her that would turn you into stone. You have to look into her eyes and then you would turn to stone. She she could be seeing you all the time. As long as you're not looking at her, you're absolutely fine. So I feel like that's a weird inversion of that story. It's always her like gaze that's seen as dangerous, but it's actually not. It's the gaze of the person who's looking at her. Nice. Wow, of course. A warning to sort of prying eyes everywhere. Mm, exactly. Yeah, so I was just going to say, when I was looking through stereotypically to the people of Mesopotamia, ugly things, one of the main examples that comes up is the terrifying face of Humbaba, the giant um, who Gilgamesh slays in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And not to sound like a broken record, but there are really only very few things that I talk about on this podcast, uh, but I'm going to steal one of Caroline's today, because that mask is used as an apotropaic device but there's there's a there's a theory that <clears throat> the the grotesque face of Humbaba has a link to the gorgon faces of, of Medusa and her sisters um, because they're used in very similar ways and even the story of the slaying of Humbaba by Gilgamesh has some similarities to the story of Perseus um, slaying Medusa uh, in that Gilgamesh approaches the monster and his eye is the eye of death um, and upon entering his presence Gilgamesh finds himself uh, rooted to the spot in this sort of stupor. Uh, it's not necessarily said that like he's turned to stone by the gaze, but there's something so terrifying about him that he's frozen, basically. So yeah, he he kind of stupefies with this with this evil eye of his. Um, and then ultimately, Gilgamesh does cut the head off of the monster as well, and he doesn't carry it around for any sort of practical purpose, as far as I know. But that's the, there's interesting parallels there. And then yeah, both of the faces uh, of Humbaba the giant and then of the Gorgons get used in a in a sort of apotropaic way um, in both cultures as well. So, yeah, I think there's some some clear DNA there between the two stories. That's amazing. It's a sad end for a homophobe to be stoned or turned to stone by the gays. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that, Flo. I was like, what are you talking about? Well, Barney said uh, turned to stone by the gays, and I thought, yeah, that might be a yeah. fitting. That might be... That's, that might be a fitting punishment good. for Sam. Fantastic. So we do have some ugly demigods and gods like Meg mentioned. Barney, have you got any more um, ugly gods from the ancient Near East? Uh, not from the ancient Near East, but over in Egypt, um, I think there's a pretty classic example of a somewhat grotesque god um, who is quite a favourite of mine, actually. There's a, there's a small... Um, quite animalistic and they say dwarf god called Bess um, who has short little bandy legs um, and a scary face and a lion's tail and generally looks quite monstrous but is benevolent and benign which which I quite like like there's sort of a lot of duality I think summed up in Bess like he's he's ugly but kind and uh, like destructive but protective in the same way like destructive of evil um so yeah he he deters evil spirits again it's more more apotropaism here and he is a protector of mothers as well and actually i didn't mention him in the childbirth miniseries uh, but he would have been a good person to bring up he helps taweret the hippo goddess um in protecting mothers and yeah so i just he's just quite a nice quite a nice little god quite a domestic protector but yeah, one of the great descriptions I found of him is that he looks like a monkey in old age. 
Oh, that's quite nice. Uh, but yeah, it's I really I think that that duality is quite in, interesting about him, and that um, yes, there are some parts of him that are very monstrous, but there's beauty in it as well. You know, some of his features are lions' features, and you know, lions have this kind of like powerful, destructive beauty um, in in ancient Egypt and and in the ancient Near East as well. And so, I quite like him. Whether or not the ancient Egyptians saw him this way as as a symbol for like the the beauty in everything, even in the most monstrous things that a culture might identify. I've just given Bez a Google um, because he sounded like a really nice guy and apparently tattoos of Bez could be found on the thighs of dancers, musicians and servant girls, which I think is quite nice. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's... Um... Did I Did I bring a fact? Did I bring a new fact, a fresh <laughs> fact? Thank you, Google. I think it's because he came to symbolise the good things in life, music, dance and sexual pleasure. So, you know, good old Bez having a fantastic time. I just think it's really refreshing that like all of those those things that you're describing are often associated with like aesthetic ideals and stuff like that. And that, you know, the symbol of this for the ancient Egyptians was this charmingly hideous little dwarf. <laughs> I think he sounds lovely. I'd love to have a drink with him at some point. I bet he's got some stories. Yeah, for sure. Um, I should also add a proviso there that when I say dwarf, I'm very much using the terminology of Egyptology, and in my mind it's more of the sort of fantastical dwarf than necessarily describing like a little person. Yeah, I was thinking of Gimli when you were talking about dwarfs being slightly squat and and charmingly hideous, but also very kind. Gimli was brought to mind. I think Gimli and Bess would get on. They'd probably enjoy a couple pints together. And try and get Humbaba to throw them. (laughs) 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 You'll have to toss me. That was a very bad impression of Gimli speaking to Legolas in one of the Lord of the Rings films. No, no, no. Speaking to Aragorn, speaking to Aragorn, because specifically, don't tell the elf. Of course. Nobody tosses a dwarf. It's Helm's Deep. Nobody told my husband that I got that bit of Lord of the Rings lore incorrect. Okay, so um, are there any other ancient uh, gods or demigods uh, that might be considered ugly that we can talk about? Xenia, I feel we can probably um, both talk about one who is uh, Hephaestus for me and Vulcan for you, who was um, a god of uh, like god of metalworking and blacksmiths who famously had what's translated often as a club foot. I think the Greek word is like kulopordis, sort of twisted foot. I don't know if you want to come in on that, but it, that is a really interesting one because he's it's quite a big part of his sort of characterization in in Homer, uh, especially and, and originally that he's got this disability and he walks differently to other people. Um, and he sort of tells, talks about how, how he was, it's been his life since he was born. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so most of the time the gods are kind of perfect, aren't they really? They're supposed to be very beautiful, whatever they're the god of, they're supposed to be more perfect than any human could possibly be. But then you throw into the mix uh, Vulcan slash Hephaestus, who uh, does have a physical disability and that doesn't kind of stop him, if that makes sense. He then he then goes in and becomes the blacksmith of the gods and makes things that are uh, more beautiful than any of them. <laughs> so yeah, that's that is his defining feature, though. Is he's the he's the only god I think in the the Greco-Roman pantheon who has a, a physical disability. Can I just say one thing about disability? I feel like we could actually probably do a whole episode on this because it's so interesting but I didn't realize until I was doing some research for this that Athens actually had a sort of benefit system for people who were physically disabled um Sparta as you might guess absolutely did not 
But Athens, people who are described as adunatoi, which means sort of, you could translate it as disabled. It means sort of not possible, um, unable to do things. These people, the adunatoi, were sort of looked at by the council and were given food if they couldn't work. So they had a they had a sort of welfare state. That's very interesting. I wouldn't necessarily have expected that. I know. There's one source where someone is basically sort of defending themselves to the like Athenian council and saying, no, I, I am disabled or I am, you know, adunatos um, and I need you to keep giving me my my three obols a day or whatever. And the council are being like, oh, but are you? And it's like, oh, my God, the, the ancient DWP are, are here. <laughs> it's so weird. Denying blue badges throughout history for your chariot. <laughs> I also find find that quite interesting that they have to argue that they are in fact still disabled because I was asked <laughs> in a survey if I still had autism, um, <laughs> which <laughs> as far as I know, yes. Got over it. <laughs> <laughs> Got over. Thankfully, thankfully I had a good sleep and I started eating carrots only and I'm completely cured. It comes and goes. It does, it does. <laughs> Give me a train set and I'm right back there. <laughs> Um, I have an etymology hour for Vulcan, who's the, the Roman Hephaestus. Nice. So from Vulcan comes Volcano. Oh, nice. Woohoo. So the, the idea is that he lives under Mount Etna in Sicily, and that's where his blacksmith forges because the volcano is hot enough there and he can, he can forge all of his lovely jewellery and inventions and robots and things that he makes for the gods. Um, so, yeah. It's whenever he's having a particularly heavy day of business, that's when Mount Etna erupts. Nice. Vulcan also is the name given by Gene Roddenberry to a, a species on Star Trek, who are perhaps the most autistic of all the species in Star Trek. <laughs> uh, I've heard a lot about uh, sort of the ancient attitude towards ugliness that, for the most part, people can't help whether that's a physical deformity or whether that's the size of their penis and shape of their penis or, you know, how much hair they have on their head. Is there is there any kind of uh, description in the ancient world of ugliness that actually could be helped if you just had a nice shower, good shave and uh, maybe a perm? Yes, all of those things, in fact. Lovely. <laughs> Yeah, so actually a really extreme contrast of sort of the beautiful and the and the ugly is Gilgamesh and Enkidu, his companion, at the start of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, these guys again. The the buddy cop comedy duo, Gilgamesh and Enkidu. So Enkidu, when he first uh, is created, is the sort of polar opposite of Gilgamesh. Um, he doesn't live in the city like Gilgamesh does he lives out on the steppe and he runs with the animals so that means he's sort of wild and chaotic and um, opposed to everything about Gilgamesh that's sort of settled and urbane um, and one of the main things that uh, is described about him is how his hair is all matted and long um, and when the prostitute Shamhat is sent out to sort of tame him and bring him into the realm of human society she sees his divinity beneath his kind of ungroomed state, his like animal nature. And, and on that basis tells him that he's beautiful. Um, and, and it's upon grooming himself and, uh, and washing his hair and, and cutting it back and, and basically dressing more like Gilgamesh, who is, you know, walking around with his nice oiled beard and beautiful flowing locks uh, that he, yeah, that he's tamed and brought into that sort of urban culture. So yeah, this is something that can be controlled. 
um, is is grooming, and grooming is clearly very important, um, especially to ancient Near Eastern kingship ideology. You know, the perfectly curled and oiled beard and stuff like that. And so, yes, ugliness is very much being unkempt and ungroomed, and beauty is to be well kept and well clothed. So it's kind of like how in films nowadays, uh, the lead female character might be made beautiful by removing her braces, taking off her glasses, taking her hair out of her ponytail, possibly bleaching a moustache and plucking a monobrow, looking at you, Anne Hathaway. Um, and um, and that's, that's a you know, I think that's a good, good uh, parallel. Flo, incredible reading of the Epic of Gilgamesh there as uh, the Princess Diaries. Thank you. Is it Princess Diaries? It is yeah. Princess Diaries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a, the best adaptation we've got of a Gilgamesh. <laughs> it was us thinking it was going to be this big, like, bro-based action movie when really it was under our noses the whole time. <laughs> it's already been done and perfected. I, now I haven't actually seen Princess Diaries, but the but the pop culture reference is so prevalent that I've been able to extract that from from Gilgamesh and Enkidu. But I'm presuming that Anne Hathaway doesn't stagger frothing at the mouth and and covered in dirt from from the forest. I'm presuming that. <laughs> Nor does she have sex with a prostitute for for a week. <laughs> no, I think that's Pretty Woman. You're getting it mixed up, Barney. <laughs> right, so. So yes, so you can sort of you can sort of temper your ugliness by just having a good wash, trimming your beard, sorting your life out in general. Everything that we aim to do in January, basically, uh, when the new year rolls around. Is there anywhere else in the ancient world where you could just look a bit less ugly by wearing better clothes, or where people <laughs> are considered ugly because they don't bother? I've actually got the reverse of this, which is that in ancient Greek comedy and Aristophanes comedies, you might put on nasty clothes to make yourself seem uglier so that you could get more pity. So there's a really funny bit in um, Acarnians, which is one of Aristophanes comedies where the main character he's got to persuade uh, the Athenians of something. And he's like, I've got to look really ugly and downtrodden and wretched to get this, this pity from them so that they'll do what I want. So he goes to see Euripides, who's a, a tragic playwright. And he says, I need some ugly rags. Um, and Euripides, you know, he, he tells the stories of the, of the wretched and downtrodden. And he, it is, the, the representation of Euripides in this comedy is very funny. He kind of comes out of his house and he goes, yeah, okay, I've got, I've got some rags. And he's like, like filing through all his little rag piles and he's like oh Telephus's rags oh maybe Thyeste's rags could work for you or well, I know's rags so he's got like this huge pile of, of horrible ugly rags that he's like decided which would be best for Dicaeopolis to persuade the Athenians in um, which I think is quite funny that is quite funny did he ask will you rip these rags up for me to wear on stage oh, oh. if you beat me to it <laughs> <laughs> Euripides Eumenides yeah very good <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm feeling very satisfied now I stole that punchline from Barney. Um, so I think I might draw the episode to a close because can't get better than that, can I? So I'm going to ask everybody what their favourite fact was that they learned today on this episode of Against the Law. And Barney, I'm going to start with you because I stole that punchline from you. I think I was quite surprised at how persistent the ugliness of baldness is in ancient Greece. Um, I don't know why I think I've just... I have in my mind's eye of, of certain Greek busts that some of them are bald, or, or maybe it's Roman ones, or maybe I'm wrong entirely. But yeah, I hadn't really considered that that was such a persistent thing there. An interesting fact to me, although not necessarily a comforting one. Listen, you've got a fine head of hair, Barney. You've got a long time until you have to worry about being perceived as ugly by the ancient Greek. 
got those Gilgamesh locks. You have. No worries. Meg, I'm going to come over to you since that was your baldy fact. I don't know if this counts as a fact, but obviously my favourite thing was the idea that Enkidu is the original Anne Hathaway. That's fantastic. <laughs> sublime. I've also just realised, Flo, if you weren't talking about The Princess Dark, were you talking about The Devil Wears Prada? That is another film that I have not seen. So, no. Okay. I was... this is, I, we're going to need to discuss this after we wrap up today, because how <laughs> could you have not seen either of those? Okay. Anyway. So, hang on. Anne Hathaway is constantly either glowing up or falling on hard times, right? Because I'm now thinking yeah. of Les Mis, right? Where her hair is cut. Ah, as it would be in ancient Greece if she was grieving and downtrodden, yeah. She's transitional. Yeah, she's a woman for all seasons. Christian Bell had it hard losing and gaining all that weight for all his different roles, but actually Anne Hathaway has it hardest with her <laughs> with her glow-ups and glow-downs. So, Xenia, I'm going to go over to you before people start making a list of films that I need to watch. Um, So I like cute little bears, but I am actually also going to add to your list of films to watch because... <laughs> Um, I saw a really good documentary about Bez and how he feeds into like medieval ideas about the devil. Um, it was presented by an art historian called Alastair Souk. So can highly recommend that. I have to say, I, I so I will add that to my list, but I also was going to go for Bez. He just sounds like a really cool guy. Um, I mean, he's he's just, just a fun-loving little kind dude who also is in the Happy Mondays, which is, you know, pretty cool. Um, so that was this episode of Against the Law, but we'll be starting a new trilogy on the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, why not support us on Patreon? Our different support tiers can get you merch, shout outs, and even personalised content. If you want to hear more from Against the Law, find us on Twitter at Against Law, and we're on Instagram and TikTok. Search for at Against the Law Podcast.